Shalom, and welcome back to Zoopedia, where I welcome you to part three of our six-part national park series. This is arguably one of my favorite episodes of the series, and I can't wait to give you guys the inside scoop. My name is Zach Zoo, and before we continue exploring the frontier that is the history of our country's natural wonders, I need to give y'all a recap of part two, The Last Refuge. Before we hop into this recap, let's hop into the Zoopedia fun fact of the week. In honor of me writing this out on a Sunday night before jumping into everyone's favorite day of the week, did you know that before alarm clocks were affordable, there were professional knocker-uppers to wake people up for work? This was something that started during the Industrial Revolution in Britain and carried on in some places until the 1970s. Good thing this isn't a thing anymore because I could not think of a person I would hate more than someone I actively paid to make me conscious on a Monday morning. And with that being said, let's float on over to a delicious recap of Part 2, The Last Refuge. We jump right in with concerns from John Weir, eloquently expressing his concern for the destruction of the great wilds that were once boundless and unending. Because there was no punishment for crimes in the parks, park wildlife was routinely killed, livestock overgrazed park meadows, and tourists carved their names on rocks and trees. Although, the latter definitely sounds way better than the former. Then, a poacher named Edgar Howell helped spur things along when he was caught skinning buffaloes he'd shot in Yellowstone and bragged to a reporter that he would basically only get a slap on the wrist, and the legendary George Bird Grinnell spread the story through a magazine. Due to public outcry, Mr. President Grover Cleveland signed a bill into law that authorized regulations to protect the park and wildlife. Then we took a special trip down to my old home state of Florida, where the Audubon Society, along with Mr. Bird Grinnell, tried to fight the powerful millinery industry that was slaughtering more than 5 million birds a year for high fashion hats for women. Shout out to John F. Lacey for championing the Lacey Bird and Game Act of 1900, which made transporting birds killed in violation of any state law a federal crime and soon government agents were confiscating huge shipments of bird skins and feathers. Then we were introduced to good Sir Richard Wetherall and his niche passion of archaeology that caused people to rob ancient ruins, specifically the ancient ruins of Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon. Our hero Teddy Roosevelt comes in signing a law that created Mesa Verde National Park, which was the first park created to celebrate a prehistoric culture and its people, which broadened the park idea. With the help of John F. Lacey, the Antiquities Act was passed, and disturbance of these prehistoric ruins was a federal crime. With the Antiquities Act, President Roosevelt was able to nominate specific places as national monuments. And even though locals didn't realize it was good for them at the time, Roosevelt passed the Grand Canyon as a national monument, which kept the beautiful landscape preserved for future generations of people to die from heat stroke while also being visually stimulated beyond belief. Unfortunately, we ended the episode with the creation of a dam within the Hetch Hetchy Valley in Yosemite that ultimately drowned a true masterpiece of nature forever under its reservoir. President Woodrow Wilson signed the bill that approved the dam into law, and the year after, our beloved John Muir passed from pneumonia. But we continue his legacy into Part 3, The Empire of Grandeur, from 1915 to 1919. Let's take a journey. Introduction. In search of a cohesive park system 
By the time the park idea turned 50 years old, a dozen national parks had been created. While the Departments of War, Interior, and Agriculture each claimed responsibility for the parks, the truth was that no one was in charge. Many of the nation's most spectacular landscapes remained unprotected and vulnerable. The building of a dam in Yosemite's Hetch Hetchy Valley stood as a terrible testimony to this fact. In 1914, John Muir died after losing the battle to save the beautiful valley, but his efforts were not in vain. An unlikely alliance of railroad barons, adventurers, and some of the nation's wealthiest men would emerge to take up his cause and follow in his spirit. A new leader would promote the parks as never before and embark on a crusade to bring them under a single management. With his own intensely personal reasons for supporting the parks, charismatic businessman Stephen Mather would use his wealth and connections to bring about change. Oh, if only the world had a Stephen Mather today. I cannot wait to tell you guys this man's story. Stephen Mather, the right man at the right time. In 1914, self-made millionaire Stephen Mather visited Sequoia and Yosemite National Parks and was disgusted by what he saw. The hiking trails were in poor condition, cattle grazed in the meadows, and speculators had planned to log the majestic sequoia trees. Mather dashed off an angry letter to Secretary of the Interior Franklin K. Lane, who happened to be an old college schoolmate. Lane tersely replied that if Mather was unhappy with the way the parks were being administered, he should come to Washington and run them himself. That sounds like a challenge. And Mather accepted the challenge. He showed up in Lane's office and agreed to oversee the national parks, but only for a year. With his incandescent enthusiasm and driven personality, Stephen Mather was the perfect man for the job. The Elon Musk of the 1900s. Bless this man's heart. After graduating from the University of California at Berkeley, Mather had worked as a reporter for the New York Sun before discovering his own special genius for publicity and promotion. As sales manager for the Pacific Coast Borax Company, he produced a flood of publicity by glamorizing the company's beginnings in California's Death Valley and branding its product as 20 Mule Team Borax. Sales skyrocketed. 20 Mule Team Borax over Tide Pods any day. Mather started a competing Borax company and by age 47 he was rich beyond belief and ready for a new challenge. Prone to bouts of depression, Mather had discovered that time in the great outdoors served as a tonic to calm his nerves and revive his energy. He had joined the Sierra Club and counted meeting the legendary John Muir as one of the highlights of his life. With the national parks under his care, Mather now had the chance to promote and protect the places that Muir had taught him to love. This man would have been legendary if he was alive today. I wholeheartedly believe he would have been as beloved as Steve Irwin, if not even more. If that's even humanly possible. Mather's power of persuasion. To help him with the task, Mather was assigned a young legal assistant named Horace Albright, who had arrived in Washington from California a year earlier. So poor, he wore a borrowed suit and lived at the local YMCA. Looks like the college lifestyle hasn't changed that much. Albright had also been inspired by a personal encounter with John Muir and was enthusiastic about the national parks. However, much of his work at the Interior Department had been spent responding to angry letters protesting the decision to flood the Hetch Hetchy Valley. Discouraged, 
Albright intended to return to California until Mather entered his life and persuaded him to stay for one more year. As a team, Albright and Mather complemented each other. Mather was charismatic and charming, and his enthusiasm for the parks was infectious. Albright was conscientious and good at administrative work. He also had valuable knowledge of the workings of Washington, the Interior Department, and Congress. After being sworn in, Mather's first action was to more than double Albright's yearly pay, with $2,400 from his own pocket. Now that's what I call a good boss. Next, he hired Robert Sterling Yard, the gifted editor of the New York Herald, to begin churning out publicity for the parks. Mather paid Yard's salary himself and provided him with a personal secretary. I stand by my previous statement. With his small team, Mather set out to build support for a single government bureau devoted exclusively to the national parks. Mather wined and dined congressmen, senators, and publishers. He pushed through legislation that would allow private individuals to make gifts of land and money to the parks. His energy seemed boundless. Ideas seemed to pop from his head every minute. With Albright, Mather embarked on a whirlwind inspection tour of the national parks that would take them nearly 35,000 miles. In Colorado, they joined Enos Mills and a crowd of 300 for the dedication of Rocky Mountain National Park. And what an absolutely stunning park it is. I highly recommend a visit. At Mount Rainier in Washington State, Mather decided the superintendent was a political hack and fired him. At Yosemite, Mather put up half the money to buy the privately owned Tioga Road, the only east-west road through the park. After raising the rest of the amount from wealthy friends, he gave the road to the park. On his visit to Glacier Park, he bought an $8,000 parcel of land and donated it for a new location for the park's headquarters. Now do you believe me when I say how incredible of a person Stephen Mather was? Now that's how you spend a fortune. At the Grand Canyon, Mather became convinced that only by making this unbelievable wonder a national park would it be sufficiently protected. Mather felt that the key to getting Congress to pass legislation and set aside money for the parks was to increase the number of visitors. But without money to improve roads, infrastructure, and accommodation, it was nearly impossible to get more people into the parks. Mather's Mountain Party. This is arguably one of my favorite historical stories ever. Listen up if you want chills from how awesome this is. To launch his public crusade for the parks, Mather invited a group of 15 influential Americans to join him for two weeks in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. This Mather Mountain Party, quote-unquote, included prominent publishers, politicians, businessmen, and railroad builders. Mather believed that in order to win people over to his cause, they had to see and experience the places of beauty for themselves. He paid for the expedition himself and spared no expense, providing his guests with newfangled air mattresses and a Chinese cook named Tai Sing, who prepared lavish meals, served on linen tablecloths, and fine silverware. When they came across a campsite littered with tin cans and paper, Mather got his wealthy friends to help pick up the mess and left behind a note that said, We have cleaned up your camp. Keep it clean. They spent a night in a privately owned grove of big trees just outside the boundary of Sequoia National Park. Fearing that the trees might be cut down, Mather bought the grove and donated it to the nation. I keep on saying it, but how awesome is this guy? 
The group worked its way up the western flank of the Sierras, fishing, hiking, and swimming in cold mountain streams. The hardiest of the bunch decided to climb Mount Whitney, from which they could survey the vast wilderness John Muir had wanted to preserve. What an astute honor and tribute to the man that started it all. Mather made converts of them all. At the group's final outdoor supper, he advocated the need for a cohesive National Park Service and urged his new disciples to go out and spread the word. Tai Sing prepared a special dessert, a pastry into which he slipped a message written in English and Chinese for each member of the party. On Mather's was written, The sound of your laughter will fill the mountains when you are in the sky. Someone turn that into a sticker. It will be on college laptops everywhere in no time. By the end of 1915, Mather's year was up. But Congress had still not created an agency to oversee the parks. Mather was willing to remain for six more months, but only if Albright would stay on as well. Albright had plans to get married and start a legal career in California. But in the end, like everyone else, he couldn't say no to Stephen Mather. The ultimate yes man. The Railways, the National Parks, and the See America First campaign. From the very beginnings of the park movement, railroad companies had been selling and advertising America's parks. The reason was simple. More tourists riding the rails to the parks meant more money for the companies. The railroads were a driving force behind the creation of more national parks and many railroad barons used their political influence with Congress to achieve their goals. Notice an interesting economic dynamic that proceeds to develop between the railroads and national parks. The Northern Pacific had been instrumental in the creation of both Yellowstone and Mount Rainier National Parks. The Southern Pacific had worked behind the scenes on behalf of Yosemite, General Grant, now part of Kings Canyon, Sequoia, and Crater Lake National Parks. Crater Lake is incredibly special, one of the top five views I've ever seen hands down. It really is a must-see if you're ever in Oregon, and honestly, it's a must-see before you die in general if you love nature. Glacier National Park, on Montana's border with Canada, owed its existence in part to the efforts of Lewis Hill and his Great Northern Railway. When Congress failed to set aside adequate funds for the park's development, Hill felt free to treat it as his own little mountain kingdom, since he was spending more than $2.3 million to improve it himself. On every great northern railway brochure and billboard were three words, See America First. The slogan was part of a promotional campaign aimed at upper-middle-class white Americans from the East Coast who were collectively spending $500 million each year visiting Europe. The Great Northern promoted Glacier National Park as America Switzerland, quote-unquote. And boy, does it deserve that nickname, because Glacier was another place that I would rank as a top five must-see before you die national park. There's this road called Going to the Sun Road, and it quite literally does exactly what its name says. Breathtakingly phenomenal, and an automatic treasured memory for the rest of your life. When World War I broke out in 1914, closing off overseas travel, the railroads saw their chance to promote See America First as never before. As a publicity stunt, the Great Northern arranged for a group of Blackfeet Indians to tour the East, performing war dances. They attracted huge crowds, and wherever they went, the press referred to them as 
the Indians of Glacier National Park. Stephen Mather enthusiastically embraced the campaign to see America first. While some purists worried that the railroads already wielded too much influence within the parks, Mather saw them as partners who would help him promote the parks and create a separate park service. How wild is that? Even with something as pure and holistic as saving nature and developing national parks, its success was partially, if not mostly, rooted in capitalistic interest. Interesting discussion topic. A National Park Service with a Paradoxical Mission On August 1, 1916, efforts by a coalition of naturalists, scientists, businessmen, and boosters to protect Pacific volcanoes, with the enthusiastic support of Stephen Mather, were rewarded by the creation of Hawaii National Park. But Congress declined to appropriate any money for it because, as one senator explained, it should not cost anything to run a volcano. I can hear Stephen Mather's facepalm from his grave. In the same year, a large island off the coast of Maine was given protection when, on July 8th, 5,000 acres of Mount Desert Island were set aside as a national monument by President Woodrow Wilson. Textile industry heir George Dorr had worked relentlessly for the designation. He continued to advocate for increased federal protection for the preserve, which would later become Acadia National Park named for the French word for heaven on earth. I'm not sure why so many breathtaking national parks are being named in this episode, but Acadia National Park is quite literally heaven on earth. Never have I breathed air as pure as it is in Maine, and I cannot recommend a visit to Acadia and or Maine in general more. 1916 was also the year that Stephen Mather shifted his promotional crusade for a national park service into high gear. For years, park supporters had been arguing that the national parks needed to be brought together under a single federal agency. Yet, every bill to create one had died in Congress, the victim of quiet lobbying by powerful commercial interests and by John Muir's old nemesis, Gifford Pinchot, who believed that the Forest Service should take over the national park areas. Getting something done in government being nearly impossible because of lobbying and commercial interest? Never heard of her. When Mather entered the debate, he added an economic element to the argument. Only under a single government agency, he said, could the parks be properly packaged together and promoted. Using his exceptional promotional skills and the connections he had cultivated, he organized a publicity blitz for the cause, the likes of which Washington had never seen. Newspapers ran glowing stories about the parks, Letter-writing campaigns were launched, and school children were encouraged to enter essay competitions about the parks. The National Geographic magazine devoted an entire issue to America's scenic wonders, and Mather made sure every congressman received a copy. Millionaire, champion of nature, and master of marketing? Everyone needs to know and speak the name Stephen Mather. While the campaign was underway, Horace Albright and others drafted a bill creating a separate park bureau within the Interior Department. Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., who was asked to add a statement of purpose that would guide park policy into the unseen future, wrote that the new agency should manage the parks for the enjoyment of the American people, and at the same time keep them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. His statement embodied a fundamental contradiction the enjoyment of the parks versus the unimpaired preservation of the parks. Albright wrote that despite being aware of this inherent paradox, he and his colleagues believed that with rational, 
careful and loving thought, it could be done. Finally, on August 25th, 1916, President Woodrow Wilson signed into law an act creating the National Park Service. Stephen Mather was named the new agency's first director, and Horace Albright agreed to stay on as his second in command. Welcome to a legacy that will last a lifetime. The trees and mountains of America will forever whisper the names Mather and Albright for the rest of time. The Missing Mather Five months after the creation of the National Park Service, Mather convened a conference in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the park movement. There were speakers on every conceivable park-related topic, as well as an exhibit of paintings by renowned artists depicting scenes from America's national parks. As the conference continued, Mather was mysteriously absent from the proceedings. On the night after the conference ended, Albright was summoned to a private room in the Cosmos Club, where he found Mather in a terrible state, crying, moaning, and incoherent. Eventually, an anguished Mather managed to convey that he felt that he was a failure and that there was nothing left to live for. Well, unfortunately, there's no such thing as a perfect individual, and this is a perfect insight into the fragility and vulnerability of the human existence. Mather was brought to a family doctor in Pennsylvania. His wife revealed that Mather had suffered a similar breakdown in 1903 and that further episodes of depression had been relieved only by his spending time in the wilderness of the West, the same trips which had originally inspired his passion for the parks. After accompanying Mather to the doctor, Albright returned to Washington. He and Interior Secretary Lane agreed to keep Mather's condition secret while Mather received treatment at a sanitarium. In his absence, Albright would serve as acting director. Although Mather twice attempted to kill himself, his wife believed he would pull through as long as he could be convinced he had something to look forward to. On the wall of his hospital room, she permitted only two decorations. Both of them were framed pictures of Yosemite National Park. Depression is a serious illness. Take care of your mental health and remember to love yourself. Albright's Challenges the task of organizing the brand new National Park Service fell to Horace Albright, who at 27 was the youngest person in the department. He quickly realized that he would have to navigate this uncharted territory alone, with only the ideal and principles for which the Park Services was created as a guide. Besides testifying before Congress and embarking on a 10,000-mile inspection of the Western Parks, Albright also had to fend off questions about his boss's whereabouts. His task became even more challenging in April 1917, when the United States entered World War I. Albright battled to protect the parks from Western lumber and livestock interests, who saw the war mobilization as an opportunity to exploit the protected resources of the parks. President Wilson was persuaded to have the size of Washington's Mount Olympus National Park in order to increase the timber cutting. Ranchers eager to graze their livestock in the parks encouraged friendly newspapers to editorialize that soldiers need meat to eat, not wildflowers. There were even proposals that Yellowstone's wild elk and buffalo be slaughtered for canned meat to send to the troops. When Interior Secretary Lane ordered Albright to let 50,000 sheep graze in Yosemite Valley, Albright threatened to resign, and Lane backed down. What a badass move by Albright. Stand tall for the wildflowers. Albright and the creation of Zion National Park. During the war, 
Albright traveled to southern Utah to view a beautiful canyon of sandstone cliffs that had been set aside as Makuntaweep National Monument in 1909 and ignored by the federal government ever since. For Albright, it was love at first sight. He was so impressed with the towering white walls, splashed with brilliant hues of tans and reds interspersed with whites, that he wanted it to be expanded into a national park. He felt that the name Makuntaweep, from a Paiute word for canyon, was too hard to remember. He suggested that it be changed to Zion, the name the local Mormons used for it. Albright's enthusiasm persuaded President Wilson, and at the end of 1919, Congress created Zion National Park. Shout out to the Mormons! Zion National Park is an absolute treat as well. Make sure you take a visit there, whether you're Mormon or not. Mather's Return For a while, Stephen Mather was permitted only two visitors, his wife and Horace Albright. His doctor strongly believed that Mather's life depended on the national parks, that it was through the parks he'd be able to bring him back. In his regular visits, Albright brought pictures from the Mather Mountain Party, which Mather reviewed while recounting anecdotes from the trip. Albright also brought a copy of the bill creating Mount McKinley, now appropriately named Mount Denali, National Park. Wealthy naturalist Charles Sheldon, Mather's friend, had become convinced that the area surrounding the continent's highest peak, Alaska's Mount McKinley, needed to be a national park. Not just because of the majestic mountain, but also because of the wildlife teeming around it especially the endangered doll sheep. Sheldon had joined forces with the Boone and Crockett Club to push Congress to establish Mount McKinley National Park. This was uplifting news for Mather. 18 months after his collapse, in the fall of 1918, Stephen Mather returned to his job. He threw himself into his works as if he had never been away. He soon took a trip with Albright to Zion and agreed that its unique beauty made it worthy of national park status. A side trip to Bryce Canyon with its unusual hoodoo rock formations filled him with delight. Reinvigorated from his time in the parks, Mather became enthusiastic about the scenic attractions of Utah and the southwestern deserts. He pushed for the creation of Arches National Monument, lobbied for protection for the area around Lehman Caves in Nevada, home of the Bristlecone Pines, the oldest living things on earth and promoted the creation of Bryce Canyon National Park. What a wholesome man Mr. Mather was. Good to see that he came back, and what a way to make a comeback. Arches National Monument is insanely breathtaking. The grandest canyon of them all. Despite all his successes, there was one canyon absent from his list of national parks that bothered Mather more than anything. The grandest canyon on Earth, 277 miles long, 10 miles wide and a mile deep. Proposals to make the Grand Canyon a national park dated back to the 1880s, but they all had failed in Congress because of fierce opposition from local ranchers, miners, and settlers. When Theodore Roosevelt had urged the people of Arizona to leave the Grand Canyon as it was, no one had listened. Already, several hotels perched on the canyon's precipice, and when the railways extended their tracks to the South Rim, they began constructing even more buildings. Yearly visitation rose into the tens of thousands. President Theodore Roosevelt had stretched the limits of the Antiquities Act in 1908 when he established Grand Canyon National Monument. Mather desperately wanted it made into a national park. Horace Albright felt it would be a tremendous boost to his boss's health, so he poured an enormous amount of energy into the project. Albright 
also incredibly wholesome. What a tag team duo they were for each other. However, at every turn, Mather and Albright found themselves blocked by Ralph Henry Cameron, a prospector and hotel owner who considered the canyon his own private domain and was unafraid to take anyone on who got in his way. Cameron had claims on the most scenic and Cameron had claims on the most scenic and strategically located spots, and he viewed Mather's effort at creating a national park as a direct economic and political threat. In a lawsuit working its way toward the Supreme Court, Cameron's lawyers were even arguing that Roosevelt's executive order creating the national monument had been illegal. Too bad being a dick isn't illegal. In 1919, Congress finally passed a bill creating Grand Canyon National Park. A year later, when the Supreme Court ruled against Cameron, Mather and Albright figured that their troubles with him were over at last. But Cameron, newly elected to the U.S. Senate, swore that he would get revenge. I love a great hero versus villain coming-of-age story. Mather's one-year commitment to the national parks had stretched to five. He could easily have claimed victory for setting the park system in motion and stepped down. But he had renewed energy and many, many new ideas for bringing even more people to see the parks. And I can't wait to continue to deliver his story next week. Stay tuned! Thank you guys so much for joining me on another incredible chapter of our nation's history. If you guys didn't realize already, I have a huge passion for nature and our nation's national parks, and I highly, highly recommend y'all get out there and explore as many of them as you can. Remember, if you have any great content you'd like to suggest, please shoot me an email at zoopediapodcast at gmail.com. But other than that, remember to keep learning, keep hiking, and keep having a phenomenal rest of your day. Cheers.